Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Of all the characters in Mike Birbiglia's wonderfully true and funny film Don't Think Twice, Chris Gethard's runs closest to his own. Gethard began taking improv classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade when he was only 20 and quickly became a darling of the UCB community, eventually starting a beloved improv team that saw one of its members, his friend Bobby Moynihan, lead for Saturday Night Live. Unlike the movie and the title of Chris's one-man show, Career Suicide, however, Chris has continued to flourish. He has a stand-up comedy album, a book, and hosts a hit podcast, Beautiful Anonymous. On TV, you've seen Chris in supporting roles on Inside Amy Schumer, Broad City, and The Office, and on the big screen in The Heat and the Other Guys. He's taken the Chris Gethard Show from the basement of the UCB to Manhattan Cable Access to now two seasons on TV with Fusion. This August, he's taking his one-man show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but first, he sat with me to talk about his journey. So let's get to it! So, Chris, uh, I know a lot about you, but I don't know how you got involved in comedy for the first time. D- did you do comedy before UCB? Well, I did um, just like a college improv group. I actually had, in my senior year of high school, the drama teacher pulled me aside in the hall and was like, you should take my class. And I was like, I don't know if that's my thing. What was your thing before that? Just kind of being uh, like manic and like debate club, march. I did every, debate club, marching band. Um, like anything I could do, any any activity, any activity I could do. Okay. And I did the musicals in high school, but I was like, that's all they had. So I, I was like, is that what acting is? Like I was vaguely <laughs> interested in acting, but I was like, I don't really want to sing and dance. Right. So she was like, take my class, I'll make it worth it. And she just did improv the whole time. And I like flipped out. I like never felt more supported by a teacher and... Uh, it was cool, and she like entered me in all these statewide competitions, and I got second place, and I was just like, this is the best. And then I did tried out for the college improv group at Rutgers, and I didn't get in. And then I tried it again <laughs> the next semester, didn't get in. Tried out the next semester, finally got in, did it for a year. And it was short form, so it was just games and stuff. Right. And I really liked it, and it was like kind of the only thing making me happy. So the summer after my sophomore year of college, I found I, I started looking for classes. This was 2000, June of 2000. Right. I started, and it was like the UCB's website was just really poorly organized. I'd never seen a show there. I never made a trip to the city. I didn't know what long form was, but I just signed up sight unseen. How did you find their back. website? Basically, like, you know, you could, like, there were, like, some improv message boards and stuff back then, like, okay. yesand.com was the one I remember. And it was weird because it was, like, people would always, like, talk about different groups and kind of, like, talk shit on UCB. <laughs> kind of, like, it was kind of, like, oh, those guys are, like, kind of off doing their own thing. And uh, I found out about a few places in New York, and I mailed away for information from all of them. And UCB never got back to me. I found it really intriguing. And their their website was so hard to navigate. It was just like all these different squares. And some mm-hmm. of them were linked. Some of them weren't. They weren't marked. It was just really bad. And then when you could finally find the link for their classes page, all it said was, I never forgot. It said, we'll teach you guerrilla fighting techniques and spit takes. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but... I, I just have a feeling this is the, the spot. I just have a feeling this is the cool place to be. So I signed up. I got lucky. I took a chance on them. It worked out. Who was in your first class? 
My first class, probably the person that's most notable would be uh, MC Chris. If you know okay. MC Chris, yeah. the nerd rapper. Yeah. He was my buddy in my first few classes. And then Kevin Hines, who now helps run the UCB school, was in my level one class. And I think that's it as far as the people who are still around. My, my very good friend from college, Jamie Rivera, took the class with me. He still does a lot of stuff at the Magnet. So there were a few of us who are still going 16 years later. And then who was in your first group? My first group was an indie group called Magic Susie. And who was in that? Me, Kevin Hines, David Lombard, Dave McKeel, Jane Borden, Rebecca Yagi, mm. Mark Sam Rosenthal, I think, was in there. It's a good little group. <laughs> Probably forget one or two people, but that was, a, that was a crew. When you looked around that group at the beginning, could you tell who might stick with it, who might have something? Yeah, I mean... And who was just sort of part of the group? I think we... I mean, we were all pretty motivated. Um, and I always think back and I realize, like, you got to also remember UCB was very different then. It was very small. Right. And, like, nobody was really getting jobs. So it was like, I don't think it was even maybe in terms of, like, who's going to stick around, who's going to gut it out. Because it didn't really feel like much pressure back then. I think people now sign up and it's like, all right, as soon as you get into class, it's go time. You know, this whole history, you right. know, this lineage wasn't really like that. And I also think it was especially not like that for me because I was 20 years old. I was like, I was 20 years old. It was just like so baffling to think about now. I'm 36. But I just kind of didn't realize that there were consequences or that it was anything but fun. You know what I mean? What you were getting yourself into, that this might be a career. Big time. Big time. Like my second Herald team, I was on a team with Jack McBrayer and Rob Corddry. And like, I should (laughs) have been so scared. I should have been so intimidated. But I was just like really young. It was kind of the only thing in my life that was making me happy mm-hmm. and excited. And I was just so ha- I was just like so happy to be a part of it. And I definitely like wanted to do my best, definitely wanted to find opportunities. But it wasn't, I didn't really get a sense of like who was going to fade away, who was going to stick with it. Definitely had the sense of like, I think back then, here's what it was. It was like anyone who found it is a part of it. And that's different. That's way different than now. Now everybody right. knows about it. Back then it was definitely like, it was not a thing that many people knew of and it was not a thing that was easy to find info about. So it was like anyone who's here found their way here because something else was kind of right. like lacking or broken <laughs> in their life. And that vibe was really everywhere. And, uh, when did, when did the, when did you first get a sense that this would turn into a long term career? See for you well it's a really hard question because i I think honestly i just kind of turned around at some point and realized man i got nothing on my resume i'm in my mid-20s i'm a college graduate but i i've never i don't have like a job that like no one's gonna hire me for a corporate gig at this point like the window is closed what Um, did you have when you got the guest writing stint at snl so my first gig i actually was hired as the writer's assistant for crossballs okay comedy central besser Matt Pesser, who's one of the founders of ECB, he was the star and EP of that show, creator of the show, and he hired me to come out and be the writer's assistant. He was like, you'll kind of learn how, learn the ropes. And that was the first thing where I was like, maybe I can make it, you okay. know? And I had done, I had done some commercials before that, and I had done some, like, uh, spots on Conan, like, doing, like, sketches right. and playing weird characters. And that felt so encouraging. Had, so you had credits. Balls, I had a couple, but those never felt real or sustainable to me. Like it, it, those were such a crapshoot, I should say. They felt real, mm-hmm. um, 
but it was it, it never felt it felt like man like this commercial thing like I could go audition for commercials and maybe get them maybe not that's not like a le- like my dad hardest working dude I've ever met blue collar guy Jersey like it's never been an option for me to just like let it come as it may like I need to be <laughs> able to like see what it is and grab it and going to California to work on crossballs was the first time I realized like oh there's actual jobs here actual jobs where you can like do hard work and the hard work will get you a good reputation and then you get more work. Like I see that there's actually a path. A sustainable. Yes, there's a sustainable path in the entertainment industry where it's not just the crapshoot of auditions or luck. That was very good to see. How did you get the uh, the SNL guest writing? Well, that, uh, I'd just been doing ASCAT a lot. And I was mm-hmm. kind of like, I was definitely like the, the lowest rung on the ASCAT totem pole for a couple years there when I first started doing like the first year I did it, they asked me to do Super Bowl Sunday and they asked me to do Oscar <laughs> night. And that was it. That was the two times I got the invite. And then the next year it was Super Bowl Sunday, Oscar night and a couple other Sundays. And then it built. And then Amy told me, come by whenever you want. And then I was very respectful of that. I'd drop by once in a while. And then she was like, you, I'm serious. Come by every time, like anytime you want. I'd, I'd love it if you're every week. So it just organically got very involved in ASCAP. And I'll tell you, I really kind of underestimated myself, I think. And it paid off big. Um, because I was, ma- I was like humble, but maybe to a point of like low self-esteem back then. And what would happen a lot is, you know, Seth Meyers was there most weeks. Him and Amy were so tight on SNL. And I think a lot of the UCB people would maybe schmooze a little bit or maybe get a little, you know, like would worry about what they were saying in front of Seth in a way that, came off a little cagier than they meant it to and I think he could sense that and that it's not the best feeling I think to like show up at this place where you're supposed to blow off steam and feel that there's maybe some people who know who you are and are reacting to that and I never thought anything with SNL was ever a possibility for me so I would just hang out and we would talk about HBO a lot and comic books a lot he's a big DC comics fan I'm a Marvel guy through and through and he's really obsessed with Blue Beetle and I'd always be like dude like not only do you like DC Comics, you like a pretty, like... Skewer. Uh, yeah, like, this is not one of the top tier... D- it's not no. even like Batman. You know, and everybody knows Batman's cool. Even Marvel fans begrudgingly admit that Batman's oh, yeah. all right. Blue Beetle, that's your dude. Like, and we just, like, bust it. And he'd be like, you like X-Factor, motherfucker. Shut up. You know what I mean? And we just joke around. So it became, like, a real, like, an actual friendship level thing. Not that we were the tightest in the world, but mm-hmm. we'd see each other, we'd shoot the shit. And it became clear to me that he actually, I think, was pretty comfortable with that and appreciative of it and um and then i just got a call out of the blue one day he just called me cell phone rang mm-hmm. it was 212 number that i hadn't seen like i, I don't pick up numbers i don't know but 212s <laughs> i assume that it's uh maybe business related and i always pick up the 212s and it was just seth he's like buddy how you doing and i was like oh i'm good man what's up everything all right and he's like yeah we got extra money in the budget you want to come right for us for two weeks and i was like whoa yeah and it was like really it came out of nowhere, totally blindsided me. And it was such a great opportunity. It was so cool to go in there and see it. And also like I, I got a sketch to dress rehearsal and it was that was such an eye opener because I was always like, Man, I'll teach classes at UCB and like that'll be cool. Um but I realized like, oh I'm I'm kinda I can hang. Like I'm not as good as anybody, but like I'm in the mix. Like I'm You didn't feel high stakes pressure that people talk about no, it was SNL. pretty supportive. And I, I mean, there was pressure on myself. It's funny, Brian Tucker, who, who, um, has been the head writer there now for a few years. Right. We got to our very first read through the first week I was there. It's funny. So many UCB people there have been being really nice and supportive. And he was not a UCB guy. And I'll never forget. He leaned over to me right before the first read through and he was like, so this is going to go either really well for you or really, really poorly. 
And it was just like the most honest advice, but it was cut and dried. That's mm-hmm. what it is. There's pressure, but it either goes great or it falls on its face. That's what it is. That's what it is. And I got a sketch to dress. That really made me realize that I'd been underestimating myself. And then I didn't get hired that year, and that was very, very hard. Kind of felt like I had an inside track, and I blew it. My packet was really bad. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of blew it, and it, it messed me up. It messed with my head for a long time, long time. Put me back in therapy, um, that and a number of other factors. But that was kind of the straw that broke the back. And um, When, when hard. not long after that, Bobby Moynihan gets it. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys stepfathers together. Yes. So, so you can see this movie right. I'm in with Birbiglia has a lot it's, of, uh. It's, it's very, this, don't think twice, the movie you're in is very true. It echo, there were, there were many times on set where it felt less like I was acting and more like I was reenacting. No, I, I was telling somebody else that of all the cast members. I think I walked the most closely <laughs> the path. But there's, a, there's some major, major differences, which is that in the movie, everyone kind of turns on each other. Right. And in the movie, there's a lot of bad feeling. So what happened when Bobby got? Well, Bob, it was it was funny because Bobby, Bobby almost got the show, and then the writer strike happened. Right in the end of two thousand seven, and then everything just went dark. Yeah, and then he had to he got it the next year, and that year was very hard for him. And he and I have always leaned on each other, and he was leaning on me a lot. And it was funny because there were stretches where he'd be like, "Man, I really I'm so close," and this and that, and it was kind of killing me because. I realized that I had been close and the ship had sailed and now he was in this position where that might happen. It was churning up all these feelings for me of my own right. uh, inadequacies and also like praying that it didn't happen to him as well. And then he got it. And the major difference is in the movie, people turn on each other. And in real life, Bobby and I have really leaned on each other. Like that first year, he really kind of like, you know, went off the grid. He had a lot to focus on. And I think I was one of the only friends he was calling. I'd go hang out at his house. And he just needed to kind of lay low and vent. And I was that guy for him. And he's been there for me a lot. Like when we did the Gethard Show on Public Access, he came and appeared on the Public Access version of the show so many times. And that was huge for us. You know, to be a Public Access show and an active cast member of SNL was coming on. That was really massive and so kind of him. So that was that was the thing was like I, I missed the boat there and, and he got it. And we really actually, I think, became... Not better friends, because we had always been really, really tight. Really attached at the hip at UCB. Me, him, Zach, Charlie Sanders, Eugene Cordero. Like, that was my crew. But we became friends in, like, a much more meaningful way, I think, because we were able to lean on each other. And then I, ne- I never forgot this was in 2010 when I got big late. I was just going to ask. Yeah. He really was one of the guys who got me through that. Because um, I'll never forget talking with him. And I was like, it was funny, because I was like, man, that was like didn't go well i took it on the chin in the press and that sucks it's really hard but i'm not i don't feel responsible i don't i didn't crumble i was proud of that but i was definitely in my head you know i definitely was like my head was spinning a little bit how much did the chris gethard show coming out of that oh it's say i mean it pre-existed it at ucb but not in the same no it was once a month at ucb I mean, you hadn't even done the Diddy thing yet. No, well, we did it. We did it at UCB. We did the Diddy thing. He showed up. Or maybe right, that was, was that, that was after, that was Big, after Lake. Big Lake. That was after Big Lake. Because, I, right. because I remember messaging with you yes, on Christmas. On Facebook, yes. On Christmas Day when that was starting. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. That was all after that. Um, yeah, we started Gethard Show in November 2009 at UCB. Big Lake unfolded all throughout 2010. And by the end of 2010, 
it had bombed by June of 2011, we were on public access, which has to be like the quickest route from a sitcom star to public <laughs> access that's ever happened, if that's ever happened at all. But Bobby said to me, I remember when that happened talking with him, and Bobby was the one, he goes, you know, I got SNL, and Zach got The Office, and you got Big Lake, and they all looked like good opportunities at the time. And he was like, honestly, he's like, all three of us, he was like, we were all at a point where it was just, who's going to notice that there's these guys that have some good stuff happen? And he was like, you could have gotten The Office, and Zach could have gotten SNL, and I could have gotten Big Lake. He's like, it was a crap at a certain point. Right. Like, we were, it felt like we were all going to blow. Like, we were all going to move on. And you just got the short straw, man. He's like, you got the bad luck. It sucks. He's like, it sucks. But it's not about you. He's like, it's not about you. It just wasn't the right project for you. It wasn't the right... There were a lot of things about it that weren't right. It's not on you. It's not on. It's not a demonstration of who you are. So, well, Bobby, same with that. And then the Chris Gethard show. Yeah, what makes this the the project for you? Well, it really made me reexamine my values and my priorities. Like, I realized one of the things that happened with Big Lake was when it went away. I was like, you know what? Like, I don't watch sitcoms, and sometimes I even kind of like roll my eyes at them, make fun of them a little bit, conceptually. Like, why am I fighting so hard to be a part of one? And I was actually really weirded out because I was like, how come this isn't hurting so much? And I kind of realized, like, man, I'm chasing this job for ego. I'm chasing this job because I want to have one of these big jobs everybody from UCB gets. Like, I want the pat on the back. I want the cool factor. I want the status. And that's never really been my style. Like, I've always been a dude who has some integrity, I think, and who, even as a kid, I always liked punk rock. Since I was in eighth grade, I've been going to punk rock shows. It was all about, like, keep it small, do it yourself. There's a community of people, all these things that I think showed up in the Chris Gethard show. So the experience of my sitcom going away really made me look at my ego and how I was kind of chasing ego, chasing things for the wrong reasons. And I realized, like, man, if I'm going to take it on the chin in the press like I did, it better be for something I actually give a shit about. <laughs> better be for something that I'll actually stand behind. Right. And the Gethard show at UCB, like, very, very quickly, it was just selling out. I mean, they'd put the tickets on sale. It was once a month. wasn't a big deal. But they'd put the tickets on sale. And, like, no joke, half an hour later, gone. And then I'd get on stage with these comedians, you know, from the start. Shannon was there. Bethany was there from the very second one we did. Finelli, Will Hines, and a lot of other people faded away. A lot of other people were sort of it, part of it come and go. But what I started realizing was, like, we're really figuring out something new here. We're, like... It's like people's personalities are really driving it. It feels very honest. The audience is getting involved. They're like, the audience is like walking on stage and being a part of it. And people are so excited about it. Like they were laughing at it and having fun with it, but it, there was something very exciting about it where I was like becoming convinced of like, I think I'm figuring out something new. I think I am. Like I'm not trying to pat myself on the back and I'm not a fucking genius. I'm not saying that, but like it's, like, as far as late night being game-driven and interactivity-driven, like, I can honestly say that I, I was d experimenting with that stuff in 2009. There's other people who have stumbled right. into it and who are doing it much better with capabilities to do it in a worldwide way. But I think I sort of, like, saw where late night was headed. And was, I've always been really excited by late night. And it just felt exciting. And it felt like this thing I wanted to double down on. And honestly, I'm kind of stubborn. And I have a chip on my shoulder. And, like, pretty meek, mild-mannered guy. But there's some anger there. And I think I was just like... I don't want to ever be in a position again where I'm, like, just getting creamed publicly for a thing I don't give a shit about. I'd rather, like, fail doing the Like, if no one ever hears about the shit I'm doing but I believe in it, I think I'm okay with that. 
And then it worked out for years. I kept passing on opportunities, passing on opportunities because I really wanted to make Gethard show work. And I think we, I think we have. I think everybody's been surprised. Well, the the remarkable thing about it is once you took it out of the theater and went to cable access, and now with Fusion, is you really built your own community. Yeah. How yeah. does it feel to do separately from what UCB built a community of improvisers? You built a real community of just fans and yeah. People. And it was interesting, like, How in the early feel? days, it was a lot of UCB converts, but then it started just becoming, like, all these people were finding it on their own, and it was really exciting. It's been really exciting, and, like, I'll never forget, like, when we started the show, the first few episodes, we'd just get people in New York calling and being like, what is this? What are you doing this for? Like, people watching on public access, and then I remember, like, we got a call from Jersey, and it was like, oh, you're watching on the internet and actually calling, and we started getting calls from Connecticut, Pennsylvania and then Kansas, and then California, and then Canada, and then Brazil, and then Sweden, Panama, Pakistan. Like, you start feeling it actually spreading all over the world. And it's like, you know, I'm checking my emails, and we're getting T-shirt orders from Ireland, from Scotland, from, like, Australia, people writing letters. I remember getting a letter from a guy in Australia that was straight up, like, don't quit. This is a cool thing. People are finding it. I found it. It's awesome. Don't quit. And it really was a community. It was a community that like propped me up when I really needed propping up. So it was really kind of an amazing experience. It was an amazing experience. And I think it's like a big part of what kept us all going and really made me realize like there's a lot of people out there who maybe don't like mainstream stuff. And I've always been one of them. Music wise, my favorite comedian was always Andy Kaufman. I was always obsessed with David Letterman, who was such a rabble rouser. Like WFMU radio was something I grew up with. Very outsider stuff. And I started to realize, like, oh, there's a lot of those people out there. And it's like, they're not united yet. They're individuals. Like, I'm getting emails from these individual human beings who are finding this thing. And this thing, which is an admittedly very often not well-made TV show on public access television, even when the episodes aren't good, it's like representing this it's representing something larger. Like there's people who can see beyond the fact that the show hasn't figured out what it wants to be yet and who can kind of see the intentions and see the integrity and see the core and they're identifying with it as theirs the same way that I used to like look at local bands and be like, that's my band. Those are my guys. I'm going to support them. That's my guys. Like started to feel that and it was like really exciting and addictive and definitely changed my life. I think saved my life. Met my wife through the show. All my best friends are people I know through the show. And it's just this thing that I think a lot of us involved with it, like, it's funny, as the show's starting to get bigger, it grew a lot this past year. And I think we're all fiercely, fiercely protective of this idea of like, no, 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 this thing will always, always be a thing where people can come, make it their own, feel safe, feel like they're a part of it, feel like they have some ownership over it. It's never about us. It's always about the people watching and I think we're really, that community, when that started showing up, when they started calling in and started emailing, really all of us were like, whoa, there is something very special here. And that's why we keep doing it. That's why we keep doing it, even though a lot of the people involved could probably walk away at this point to much bigger stuff. So the community means everything. Well, thanks for your, what you do, Chris. I really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, man. Yeah, we could talk all day. I know so we could, could, but the fourth time. The fourth but we're time not allowed it, to, so yes. we're going to have to stop. Sure. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. 
more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.